Well, greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS 88.1, 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour, and I'm one of your hosts, Mike Malsom. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, this is our third episode where we've actually uh, traveled outdoors. And today we are in the front porch of uh, one of Spokane's uh, great writers, National Book Award winner, uh, Spokane columnist, um, been here for at least 20 years, I think, and this is Sean Vestal. So welcome, Sean, to Art Hour. Thanks, Mike and Eric. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, have a, I have a really quick question for you because okay. this always this intrigues me because, um, I mean, when I think of a newspaper person who becomes a writer, generally they become a nonfiction writer. So did you... Did you want to be a journalist first, or did you want to be a fiction writer first? A, probably a fiction writer. Okay. I mean, definitely. There was a. I had this weird period in like eighth grade when I was forced to read the newspaper for a social studies class, and I, <laughs> and I got into Mike Royko, who was in our Chicago, local yeah. newspaper. So this is Twin Falls, Idaho. You know, <laughs> like pretty far away from that. And I, but and so I had a little period where I wrote a column for my local weekly newspaper in eighth grade. Wow. Eighth grade. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And um, my mom still has them in a scrapbook. They're crazy. They're like, I can't even think. Like, now, come out and support was... the JV football team, guys. What's wrong with you? Uh, okay. We're so just, it, it was kid stuff. You weren't well, dealing with the news. I also wrote one that's preposterous about how everybody should give Jimmy Carter credit for giving it a go to get those hostages. Like, um, <laughs> After the helicopter yeah, crash? Yeah. And, uh, is you know, it, now, this was your school newspaper or the the, the, no, the Falls? No, uh, the, the Gooding week? County, well, not the leader. It was the Enterprise, the Gooding County Enterprise. We had two weeklies then in, a, in our little town. And so, um, yeah, they ran a picture of it, and it, I had deadline pressure every week. Was that a paid gig as well? No, they didn't pay me. They just... Uh, uh, you know, yeah. they'd put anything in. It's a, local, <laughs> a truly local paper. Yeah. And, um, but, I, you know, but, so there was that early but, but uh, influence, but um, I wasn't in college or as a young man intending to be a journalist. I, I thought I would be an English teacher and write. That was what I went to college for. And uh, I basically dropped out of college in a sort of long, half-hearted way and, um, took a job at a paper, um, the other weekly newspaper in my hometown, and then began just, then I was no longer saving money for college, which is theoretically what I was doing, was supposed to be doing at that time. I was getting weekly newspaper money. It's not saving any money. Mm -hmm. And then I liked it a lot. And pretty soon going back to college was, uh, just not happening. You know, I was, uh, I kind of dropped out by degree, and two years later, I was working at a daily newspaper in Burley, Idaho, and, you know, I'd kind of given up on the idea of returning until my 40s. I went back in my 40s. But, um, yeah, so they were both kind of always in there, and doing both is kind of suits me and what I would like to do. You know, I feel lucky to get to do both. Well, and, and also, I think becoming a local columnist in a city this size, that's probably a pretty competitive gig, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of people who would like to be the Doug Clark or the yeah. Sean Vestal. So how did you end up getting into doing that? Just luck. I mean, truly just luck. Um, I 
I came here 20 years ago, almost 21 years ago, from Bozeman, where I was um, the city editor. So that's like supervising the local reporters. And uh, I had done that for a few years, been um, that kind of an editor, and came here as what they call an ace, an assistant city editor, doing the same kind of thing, only many more of us here. And so, but eventually, uh, you know, I always thought of myself as a writer, and then I somehow got on the editor track, and that becomes like more and more managerial, more and less and less doing the thing you like, you know, and that's probably everything is every business is like that, you know? And, um, so I was kind of stuck. Like I, I didn't want to go up higher and become more of a manager and I didn't want to stay in the job I had. So I just went back to writing, I asked them if I could go back and I did, I covered some beats. I covered higher ed for a while and I, this and that. And, um, I, I think I'd been around long enough and I, I was just sort of always itching for some new thing to do there. And I, um, just pitched it to them at some time toward Clark was still there, but we didn't have another Doug Clark was still there, but we didn't have another columnist. And we used to have kind of a two column on the local page. We sort of still do, I guess, um, rotation. And, uh, because I was teaching a little bit at Eastern and stuff like that. I, they couldn't, I couldn't cover higher ed anymore. And I, so I just pitched this column and literally like in the space of a week, I, they were like, okay, let's do that. And it was, uh, so it wasn't like a lot of people, they had an opening and they put it out to people, you know, it was like they had a guy on the staff and they thought they could give him a chance to do this thing. And maybe that this would add something different to the mix of what was in the paper. And, uh, so I, I just feel super lucky to, to, it's like the best job in this business, I think. So, so now what year, yeah, what yeah. year did you um, start your columnist um, gig with the spokesman? 12, I think, 2012. And did that daily writing, you know, meeting that weekly deadline or, you know, bi-weekly deadline help you be, help you? with your novel writing? Uh, did it kind of spur that on? I mean, just through the sheer practice of getting in and just writing? I don't think it did. I mean, I don't, I don't think it hurt me necessarily, yeah. but I mean, I, I, by the time I'm writing the column, I've been writing in various ways or dealing with various deadlines at the paper for a long time. And a lot of, some of them were, were more pressure than the column. You know, I write three a week now, and there were times that I wrote two a week, and uh, sometimes that's not the most pressing schedule. At the, you know, other people write many more pieces. Some of them are shorter. You know, to, you don't have to own them as much as you have to own the column. Like you don't have to walk around and accept whatever. You know, if you're covering the breaking news, you don't. It's, so uh, there are different levels of pressure, but. Um, no, I don't, you know, I really do move back and forth between the things. And I kind of almost check them off in my mind. I, the parts of the week that I do this versus that. And um, so when I'm doing the one, like I'm, I'm, I'm off work right now. And my wife went camping with the kid and I've been trying to get some work on uh, a novel, a couple writing, fiction writing projects, trying to get that done. But I'm thinking about well, what am I going to write first thing Monday for the paper? I got a lot of ideas and it's like, well, will they still be good then? And, and then when I'm in that zone, 
I have put down the, the fiction that I finished writing through the weekend and I'm thinking about what comes next. And that Jeez. to me that those a little break, a mm-hmm. little break, not too big of a break, but a little break between stop, put it down, think about it for a while uh, helps me in both of those things. I want to go back to when you said you have to own your column because I think you, you've got to be a lightning rod in this town. Yeah. I mean, um, what what is the typical response to a column? I mean, I, I would think that most of the stuff you hear is probably negative because a lot of people don't want to go out and say, yeah, good job, and tell you that. They might think that, but the people who are mad are the ones who tell yeah. you that. Is, that. is that correct? Not so much. I think it depends. These days it depends on where, where the feedback comes from. Most of the emails that I get are positive oh. by a large degree. Oh. Um, now, yeah, that's surprising being um, there tends to be a, a, a progressive bent in, in a very conservative area. Right. So that does surprise me a little bit. Well, I think what happens is people, people don't cross over anymore as much, mm-hmm. you know. I, I mean, I wrote columns at other papers I was at years ago. I wrote a column in Bozeman a smaller town, a town where people would approach you at the grocery store. I mean, it happens here too, but it happened more there. And back then I felt like it was the way you described it, Eric. It was, you heard more criticism than praise by, by far, um, except in person. And then people would come up to you and say something nice to you at the grocery store. And those would, <laughs> now it's, so the email is mostly positive and Facebook is almost entirely viciously negative and I don't even look at it anymore unless I absolutely have to. Um, but the people who follow the spokesman there, I think are about 85% of them are trolls, you know, mm-hmm. people who just, they exist online to get in fights and insult. And, um, so that happened. Twitter is more of a self-selecting kind of echo chamber. Mm-hmm. So that's usually mostly positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the phone is a mix. There's not as much on the phone, but you do get, and like, especially race, I'll get like these kind of hit and run racist calls a decent bit, you know, it's, it's probably just a handful of people, but it feels like a lot. You mean when you write a column about race? You mean? Yeah. Okay. I mean, someone will I'm going to call and use the N-word ten times and say, that's what they do. That's what they do. Vestal, why are you so stupid? Why don't you think? Come on, that's what they're like, you know? And then uh, hang up. It's not like, call me back. We'll talk yeah, about yeah. It. yeah. What column do you think got the biggest response? I mean, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Um, the, uh, nothing's popped right into my head. Uh, Kathy McMorris-Rogers columns get the biggest response mm, and yes. also contribute the most to this division that I'm talking about, though, mm-hmm. where people turn off. I think about that a lot because you only have so many thoughts, so many opinions about things. You know, I, you repeat yourself to some degree, and I don't ever read a column. Like, I like columnists for a briefer period of time, and then I stop reading them. Not because there's anything wrong with what they're doing. I've just, kind of no I got a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, kind of like a band. It's yeah, the size of Spokane. You know, there's a certain there's a saturation point yeah. at some point in time, and then you kind of need a little break. And a lot, but. No, I'm that a- way with music too. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I uh, 
the bands that I will get every record for three or four records. <laughs> I don't buy any of their records right. anymore. Like, I, just, I get them now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there a column you're most proud of that you think, um, I mean, for whatever reason, either well written um, or got the best response? Or There are areas of coverage that I'm, you know, I, I feel strongly about writing about the police and particularly the Otto Zen case. Um, and uh, I felt like that was an important issue that, you know, at the, at the uh, I don't know, I'm wary of being too self-congratulatory about what the job is, but at the noblest definition of what the job can be, trying to trying to uh, work against this institutional resistance to doing the right thing from the, from the people that carry guns on our streets, you know, to me is as high as you can get on that list in terms of what's the social value, not, not selling newspapers, not doing this or that. What's the, the good positive reason for doing the thing that you do? To me, it is to have a voice that you can use on the side of powerlessness against the side of power, you know? And uh, so cop stuff for me is always big in um, this town, probably every town, but you know, we have good, we have ups and downs, you know, and, and uh, we have resistance to things. We've had some pretty bad. So, so that's, that's one. And then I also personally care a lot about homeless stuff. And it matters a lot to me how we as a city collectively approach and treat and deal with the homeless so that stuff matters to me a lot do you feel that your uh the stuff you write about in your column informs your fiction or do you feel like they're really two separate silos well i'm sure they somehow communicate with each other but i they, they feel siloed off you know it's it's an indirect route if they do mm -hmm. i don't see any uh you know, the fiction, I'm, I find myself digging into my own life. Even when I'm not digging into my own life, you're digging into your own <laughs> right. life, right? Because that's all you have, right? It's yeah. your only. Right. Um, so I'm writing a thing right now that's in the 1800s, and yet it's kind of autobiographical in a way. In, in what way? So, well, I guess just in the way that I, where, where can I go as an imaginative artist to think about how these people would experience this life emotionally. Like, I always think like that's like, I don't want to describe it at great length, but I want to like how you live is how you feel about how you're living in, in ways that are hard to convey in fiction. I think it's hard to get to that essence in some way. And so it's hard enough if I'm trying to write about this world, where I know what stuff looks like and I know how people act and I know what the slang of the day is and what people eat and stuff. So with the 18th century, I'm spending so much time like, I don't know, what kind of a shirt did this guy wear? Not that I have to know, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So then I'm thinking of my, I'm trying to think of my own life when I'm trying to think of what his emotional place might have been at that moment or what matters to him. And so, you know, you're rating your own experience. I am anyway. Yeah. Well, you write a lot. You talk about writing about the auto zen, the police, the homelessness. Um, I mean, you have to have a pretty large empathetic radar antenna or sympathetic both. 
Um, how does this kind of affect you mentally, being that attuned to it, but also having to write that and convey that? And it's still kind of personal because you have a feeling about it, but at the same time you have to, to write about it. And, and I don't know, yeah. uh, it's a little bit of a separation. Um, just like, how do I feel? How does it make me? I mean, yeah. I mean, to me, sometimes when I start writing, it brings up emotions that I really ne don't necessarily would want to have hanging around for a long time. But on the other hand, it might also be cathartic. It, it might. Yeah. That's maybe that's the question. Um, you know, I think that it's uh, it, it. There's a range. You know, I think that there's a certain kind of column that I write, and I can write it very quickly. And it's not one where I'm doing a lot of original reporting or bringing any. I'm, I'm mostly doing opinion or editorializing kind of work upon the work of others, and and um, and that's when I get up, up in arms about something usually, or like something kind of sparks an emotional. So that I like doesn't happen all that much though i mean it doesn't happen three times a week i'm not like totally moved to passionately <laughs> say you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. and so um i do other kinds of things that i uh you know i put in the work i make phone calls i try to do my own reporting and not just like there's a thing you can do as a columnist where is you just sit back stay away stay out of journalism stay out of the reporting the fact gathering part of it and just opine on everything all the time and I, I I do plenty of opining but I I can't do it all the time and I so I go I go through these cycles where I want to do one of these kind or one of those kind one that's a little I think some people might think it's I do some dry ones and those don't get nobody calls and yells at me when I do those dry <laughs> ones based on a policy paper from somebody you know yeah um, but, uh it, I, you know, I, I don't know how. I mean, what it is is a kind of an uh, the the effect on me is the is the effect of argument, which is not always good, like or maybe even not mostly good. You know, which is I'm arguing with somebody in my head, even if I'm not physic, you know, face to face arguing with somebody. I'm trying to persuade or uh, critique and and the. Uh, it just sometimes is it, it, it's uh, it doesn't leave me feeling great. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like, is this worth it? This kind of clashing all the time. What does that you know? What does it do to me? What does it do to me as a person? How do I interact with my family when yeah. I'm this way at work? You know, um, how do I how do I create as an artist? When to do that, I need to be open to people, open to humanity, not judgmental about humanity yeah and, um, that's what i was kind of kind of getting at i mean yeah. i i'm a pretty positive person but i you can't help but sometimes just kind of get depressed over yeah. some of the things that that's happening today you know yeah. every day it seems like it's something else you know when you talk about social media sometimes you just don't even want to look at it but yeah. you know you take a glance at it well um, and and something you mentioned earlier i've been thinking about a lot um i read a book called why we're polarized and you mentioned earlier you know because you know twitter is this echo chamber and all these other things how deliberately do you try to write to people who you know might disagree with you or is that not something that 
enters your thought process? Um, I have been more deliberate about it in the past. And one of the things on this kind of continuum that I spend a lot of time thinking about is I'm, I have evolved away from that. I've evolved away from a lot of things as a journalist in the Trump era. I have become enraged is the only way to put it. I am furious about what's happening in the country. I'm furious about my, my corner of the country, which is knowledge and information and facts and writing and, and how that's just become um, just sort of uh, reduced and, and kind of dragged around in the mud in ways that are, I don't mean people are mean to journalists. I mean the idea that we can find some, some thing in the middle to stand around and point at and agree, that is X. That is a we, fact. We all say that is X. <laughs> right, yeah. That's gone. Now, and I, I am furious every day about it. I mean, and I think that's that is a, a kind of a poison. Anger is poison, and uh, so I am less good about it. I'm less good about extending the benefit of the doubt to people I disagree with politically than I used to be. Much less. I am much. I try to logically talk myself through this, but I. I am much more open to demonizing people that I disagree with than I used to be. I've always had a rhetorical edge and that I think I come off two or three degrees harsher than I think I'm coming off at all times, my whole life. Sometimes I look at my wife and I will have said something at dinner and she's looking at me like, what did you just say to me? And I'm thinking, what did I just say to her? You know, like, like, you know what I mean? There's this difference. And so, and I think that's ramped up. And uh, so at, at the start, earlier in my columns, I would kind of make friends in a way with certain people. There's a guy in town, Hal Dixon. Hal's a good guy. I could not disagree with him less than I do. He writes me all the time. We've had bitter arguments. We've been like, I never want to talk to you again, Hal. And then we come back together and we resume and, um, something that's lost lately, really. Yeah, and and I'm. I wish I could say that I was as committed to that as I used to be, but I'm not. And I, I think about that a lot. And sometimes I think that's because the times demand this or that. Or, and then other times I think that's just because I'm justifying my desire to argue. And it is easier intellectually to just to just call all of that group over there wrong, and just kind of well in your own correctness you know <laughs> and I, I think this time you know I don't say this to point fingers at other people I think it happening it happens to all of us right now um, and it's definitely happening to me you're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office. Each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m., you'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. 
It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. You know, um, I went to one of your readings. I'm trying to think of which one it was. It was at the Cracker Building, but. Uh, yeah, there was Sam Ligon was there. I think you and Jess uh, were there. But Sam made a comment like, he doesn't know how you specifically can write these columns and have this output on the, on this end and, and, and switch gears so fast and, and go and write. And I think this was right after you, uh, I don't know if it was the your first novel that you had or Daredevils, but, I, but he just goes, that takes a lot of writing horsepower. I mean, that doesn't seem usual. Is is it much easier to do the the column writing and then switching to your fiction writing where you can kind of get lost in your own, own, own world? Or is it, uh, I mean, can you just switch gears that fast? No, I cannot switch gears. And if I'm doing, if I'm going down one path, I'm not going to be doing much of any value on the other path, generally speaking. I mean, I, so, um, I just have, I mostly have days that I, I try to work at, uh, do my newspaper work Monday through Thursday. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes I work on weekends or Fridays, you know, tragically, you sometimes have to work on a Friday, (laughs) but, but it's just, um, and then I try to keep Friday separate to, to make that a, a, big day for the fiction writing and then do do as much of it as I can on the other days. I'll write, get up and write, you know, maybe just for an hour. I mean, I can't, one of the things for me about writing fiction is I can't, I, I write really slowly, but I think I write pretty steadily. So, um, I don't know if it's a, it's a good pace. Like I'm not writing a book a year or anything like that, but I, um, I, I feel like, if you're at 300, 300 words at a crack, you can write a novel in a in a, a shorter amount of time than you think. I mean, Graham Greene famously talked about writing 300 words and then uh, having his first gin, first of many gin and tonics or whatever, you know. And um, and he wrote a ton of books. 300 words a day is like it's like a page, mm-hmm. you know. But now, if you do it every single day, right, right. yeah, you there know? you go. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard that Jerry Seinfeld thing, the planning, where all he does is he gets a calendar, and when he does it on a day, he puts an X on the calendar, and his whole goal is just to not have a day without an X. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like you write jokes, you write yeah. fiction, write 300 words every day, you get it done. And, and, I, and I count a lot of different things as writing. I mean, writing the fiction. Also, writing the columns, truthfully, is uh, is part of that. Is what are you reading? You know, what are mm-hmm. you? How do you begin to think about it when you're not writing? Anyway. Now, are you a, a planner when you write your novels? In that you yeah. kind of have this whole thing set up, you know, with note cards or whatever else. Because I've heard other authors say, you know, I let the characters tell me what 
what they, you know, what they're going to say, and sometimes their planning goes out the window because their characters develop a life of their own. So are you, are you a, a top-down planner or are you a serendipitous kind of a writer? Probably the latter, but um, I'm more of a planner. So let me see how to... I'm at the front end of working on a third novel, and I'm at the finished end of a... or ready to go through another round of edits on my second novel, which... We'll see how that goes now, but I so um, I have on this third novel. I have done more organizational planning. Is this the eighteen hundred one you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, like the first one, I just kind of fumbled my way in the dark forward, and the second one, I kind of did the same thing with a little bit more of an idea of where I was going. But then that all changed, and now. Now I have a structure in my mind that's sort of like, this is where the story will go and end. And, um, but then it kind of changes along the way. And I, I'm not very, and honestly, I make notes. I write down character. Uh, I have little notes about this character so I can kind of remind myself who they are. But they're, I never look at them. I write them. And I think that writing that stuff helps me in some way. But I don't ever go get that notebook out and consult it again when I'm writing. You know, I, I uh, yeah. Well, even as we're talking about planning the novel, you had that the evil Knievel, the interstitial chapters in yeah. Daredevil. Yeah. Is that something that you already knew you wanted to do at the beginning? And then, kind of as a second question, you mentioned that uh, you know you can't help but pour your life into your novels. That's because that's all you have. That's all you know. Why? Wh what made you want to write about evil Knievel? So the evil Knievel chapters were one of the last things I wrote in oh, that novel. Oh, okay. And, I wouldn't have figured um, that. And I'm trying to remember where they first came from. But I had, I tried to write about evil Knievel in a lot of short stories over the years. Why is that? And it was always, well, I, so when I was eight, so the character in that novel, Daredevils, is um, older than I was at the time, but it, it, in many ways living the life I was living at that time. So I was eight years old in 1974 uh, when Evil Knievel came to uh, Twin Falls to jump the Snake River Canyon. I lived in Gooding, which is, you know, 30 miles away. And I was an Evil Knievel fan because crazily, he was like a hero to kids. I just, I cannot, that's what I love about it as a fiction writer. It isn't just, oh, cool guy. I'm, you know, I had the period where I loved him as a kid, just without any irony. And then as an adult, I was like, this is such an American weird thing. <laughs> you know, first off, he's not a great guy in many ways. Yeah. So he's being held up as kind of an idol for kids. But even beside what he's like off screen, behind the scenes, what he's doing is incredibly foolish and dangerous <laughs> and pointless and self-aggrandizing and red, white, and blue on the suit. It's just so nuts and so many so I just loved all that about it and I but so when I was eight so I'm, I'm getting there in a roundabout way mm. Evil Knievel comes I'm a fan of him I've been watching him on TV I got the little thing that Christmas just the previous yeah, Christmas pull that the thing, thing out thing, and it takes off I got toy, that too sure. tried to jump him and <laughs> we were jumping our bikes off ramps in the driveway uh, well he comes and my parents wouldn't take me because it was a Sunday oh. and and we were Mormon, and this is how I remember it, and we don't do stuff like that. We keep the Sabbath day holy in our house is how I remember being told. Now, I don't 
looking back on it, I don't know if I would have taken an eight-year-old to that. You know, there might have there, there were probably other reasons that they didn't take me, but in my mind, that that's the reason. I tell people that's <laughs> that was the beginning of me leaving the Mormon Church. Emotionally, that's the reason. <laughs> right. Right? Not yeah. sitting that Red Rider BB gun. Right? Yeah, 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 right. supposed to come. Man. I said, "Mom, <laughs> you blew it. You drove me out of the church." No, and um, so. Uh, you know, so that was part of it. Uh, you know, I was always just interested in him. And um, when I was writing that novel, there was always going to be a scene where the kid goes to see the the joke. Um, but these other scenes that are in the voice of evil can evil. I, you know, I just I had some old stories, and I was just I was just trying to figure out how to do something else in the novel, add some other note or flavor to it, and. Uh, um, I looked at these old stories and I thought these could weave in in some way. And then I just began to write more in that. And it was, they were just very fun to write. Um, partly they were just profane. I mean, <laughs> as profane as they are, they were more so. I mean, I just indulged my, you know, You're cursing, in. right? And, 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 and I just made him just a foul person in many ways, which I find that delightful for some reason <laughs> as a writer, you know, yeah. um, to inhabit that kind of a person who has just excused themselves from norms and rules. And um, I think that's a great place. F- I think that should happen in fiction, right? Not in life. No, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, you know, my fun, my, the funnest reading I ever gave was in Port Townsend. And I just read those evil can evil chapters. I didn't read anything else from there. Oh. Um, and it was right after the election or no, it was before the election in 2016. And somebody came up and said, uh, right afterwards, somebody came up and said, Trump. That's what they, that's what they said, meaning the voice of evil Knievel reminded them of oh. Trump. And uh, I had had that thought a lot, too. Um, Knievel was very Trumpian. Like, he would just say things that were, that made, that were just nuts. Just stuff that obviously just occurred to him. And it Pure was just, impulse. Yeah. yeah. Impulse, braggadocio, um, you know, kind of self-aggrandizement. Those three things just in a stew. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the questions, we, we did a, uh, an episode where we asked various artists what their, like, proudest moment was, you know, in, in their careers as an artist. And I, have, do you have, a like, a proudest moment or a moment where you just go, you know, God, I just really, I feel like I, reach this level where I just feel so satisfied that it was all wor- it was worth all the work yeah. that I put into it. Um, well, th- I mean, I got an, I got an award in New York city in front of a bunch of writers, some of whom were pretty famous writers. And <laughs> that I was mean, pretty I, amazing. I, yeah, that's hard to, it's hard to overstate how good that felt. I mean, just, the risk of sounding vain. I mean, it's just, for me, what I would hope for out of this work has more to do with how it's responded to than how it sells or something like that. You know, I mean, in, in sort of the sort of currency of uh, what other writers think or the certain audience thinks, I guess is the part that's somewhat important to me. And so that was very cool. Louise Erdrich handing me this, wow, this dang cool. 
prize and you know uh not zz packer but um anyway joseph o'neill in the audience all these it just was an incredible moment and i i in my memory it i experienced it kind of like a like a trauma because <laughs> because it was so overwhelming you know so it's kind of like i can't quite remember it you know what i mean yeah. like i um but but so that's kind of maybe an obvious one. The first story that ever was that I ever published, the first short story I ever published, I have a very vivid memory of that happening. I tried for 20 years to publish short stories and nobody ever published them. Hmm. And uh, so I was sitting at the newspaper. I had just given up being an editor, gone back to being a reporter, was not yet a columnist. And McSweeney's, I got an email from McSweeney's accepting a story. And um, that's a pretty cool place to be published. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> so excited by that. And my wife was pregnant at the time. And I had had this lifelong idea that being a parent was going to hurt me as, as a writer. A lot of the writers that I liked at the time, especially Raymond Carver, Richard Ford, those guys, they're like, they're terrible about fatherhood. The things they say and believe about fatherhood. Carver called his children a baleful influence on his life as a writer. Oh, and Ford said, every child you have, it's one book away from your life, you know. And I had this selfish artist concept that this was going to kill me. This this parenthood was going to be the end of me. And uh, as a writer, I could, I'd have to give up my, my desire. And the weird thing is that no good, every good thing that happened to me as a fiction writer happened as... Cole was on the scene, you know? So Amy was pregnant when that day came. Second story I got published, we're sitting in the doctor's office waiting for his first well child visit and an editor from Tin House calls me. So, you know, and the, so the opposite happened to me. Like being a parent was better for me in every way, including opening up my life to feel it and experience more what you need as, as a writer. I've gotten way off the point though. No, that was Which right. was. proudest moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Proudest so that story, got that yeah. email. I remember I got up at my desk at the spokesman. I was so excited. I stormed out of the room, <laughs> went and walked around the block. Did a victory really lap. Know to do, you know. <laughs> Came back in. I'm like, I, you know, not that many people know. Like, hey, somebody, McSweeney's took a story. You know, it's it a limited number of people for whom that would be meaningful. And none of them were around me right now. <laughs> you know? um, so that was, you know, those first story acceptances. We're the most exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it's hard to do. It's still hard to get a story in anywhere. Because the number of people who want to publish a short story and the number of places, even though there are lots of places, it's still way up. You know, you still get no all the time. And there are plenty of great stories that just never get published because they haven't found the right reader. I have a question that I've asked other people, too, and I'm curious about this. I, I feel like we probably, for the size of city that we are and the kind of city that we are, we're pretty writer heavy. It I feels, mean, yeah, we were talking a little bit about that. Yeah, we've had some, we've had some pretty, I mean, some pretty successful writers nationwide. I mean, I can just think of four right off the top of my head. You know, you, Jess, uh, Tim Egan, Sherman, Alexi. Do you? What do you? I mean, is that just an anomaly and something weird, or do you think there's something here that nurtures writers in a weird way? Well, I think. I don't really know, I guess. I mean, I feel like we are, I agree that we've been in this period where there's been a lot of writers, and I think a lot of that centers around Jess and Jess reaching a certain level that's way beyond any, not Sherman, like Sherman's on his own plane as well, but he's also not 
here anymore, right. really. And um, just stayed here, wrote about this town, talks about it when he gets interviewed. You know what I mean? His, his upcoming novel is deeply Spokane novel. Uh, and I think... I think he decided to stay here at a period where most young creative people were not staying here. Um, at least the ones I knew. And, uh, I was surrounded by people at the, at the newspaper back then. It was a different kind of an era for the paper, for all newspapers. You know, like us, where, you know, lots of people worked for papers. There were lots of jobs. People would come here for two years and go to Seattle and then go to Chicago. And, you know, I, there are names from the spokesmen that are at all these big papers all around the nation. That was a normal thing then. So nobody wanted to stay here then. And I think I think that would extend, although I don't know those groups as well, to artists here who were looking at Portland and Seattle. It was always out there, out there. And one of the things that changed is the economy changed. I think creatives had a harder and harder time going to cities, especially those two cities. Um, and then as things got better here and as Jess had some level of success and, and, and then, other th- you know, Sharma, I don't know, some th- some things just kind of, um, some things kind of sparked that, that led to connections among the writers. I think we're all pretty friendly or friends here and we support each other and the era of social media, a lot of writers boosting each other's work online. And so I think that contributes to the sense that there's a unique thing here. Um, I do think most towns have some writers in them. You know, I don't, I guess I'd have to really examine whether we're that unusual, but it's been a certain time of, I think it's just been a great time in, in the town for creativity, for the arts, for people in the arts, helping each other out, supporting each other, trying new things. I think yeah, that's one thing that we have heard. Uh, it's been a general theme, both with local artists and artists that have come from other um, urban centers to Spokane, is the sense of the community, a very supportive art community, not a competitive type of atmosphere, much more so in terms of we're in this together to support each other, you know, and, and those things. I mean, there's certain competitions if, you know, if we have a call for artists or, you know, that kind of thing, but uh, very supportive. And, and I think probably the writing community with all of the things we have going on seems to validate that. That's sure been my experience. Everybody's really nice to each other. Everybody tries to help each other out. Uh, there must be competitiveness, I would think, but I don't. I haven't really felt it or experienced it myself. You mentioned you're working on two novels, finishing one and starting yeah. another. And I, your first story collection, God Forsaken Idaho, I loved it. It was great. Oh, thank you. Are you still writing short stories, or are you kind of I graduated to the novel? No, I mean, I, I'm not right now. I don't have one right now um, that I'm working on. I have a couple of half-started ones that I've abandoned for the moment that I'll probably go back to. Uh, but I s- generally, I mean, I've published uh, oh, six or eight stories maybe out that were not in that book since, mm-hmm. since that book. So it's been, they used to be what I did. 
fiction-wise. And now it's more novels, but I, I have not given up on short stories. I still love them. I still read them a lot. You know, I, um, but um, it being in a novel takes up that part of my brain. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, it, it, and then, you know, I just, I, there's a, you naturally, I think, want to write a novel if you've written stories. I thought at one point I would just be a story writer like Alice Monroe, maybe, you know, or not like Alice Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> just in that one way. Yeah. But, um, but uh, I do like, I like the long game. Like, I, like there's no pressure at all for long periods of time working on a novel the way I do. It's just total play. It's just me on my computer. People aren't going to look at it for months and months and months, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I do like that. Whereas with the story, it's more, even though I'm not necessarily on any kind of a timeline, I'm on my own timeline. I'm thinking, you know, you're in that, you're in that sh- smaller shape. So it's, you kind of always have access to the whole thing. As a novel, like I forget what happens 20 pages down the road. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, that's the value of having it be something that you don't have to do for a living. Too. Yeah, yeah. That's a real value. So you mentioned you read short stories a lot still, uh-huh. and you mentioned Alice Monroe. Who are some other people who you read and just are knocked out by, and you think, man, I, if I could do that, I'd be in great shape? Well, Monroe is uh, really kind of head and shoulders above that on that list i mean and and, uh one of the things me and a few friends of mine did a little bit earlier in the pandemic was uh we we read shakespeare together and and then we'll get together and have drinks and talk about but so during that time we were reading alice monroe stories and doing it on zoom having like a zoom Mm -hmm. and oh so knocked out by her she is just the most the most amazing writer the most incredible storyteller so she sort of fills the sky for me on that front. Um, throughout my life, I've had different periods for certain writers, like Raymond Carver, a lot of writers, a lot of guy writers especially, I think, go through a real heavy Carver period. And I still I still like Carver, but I don't worship him the way that I used to. Um, I like uh, Lydia Davis a whole ton. So weird. She has this weird... I just love Lydia Davis. I partly love how she just like, she writes things that aren't really stories and she just, or they're not traditionally stories and then she puts them out there and they get published because she's who she is and she just kind of brazens like, I'm calling this a story. So it's a story. <laughs> what else is a story? Unless it's a thing that you write and you call it a story, you know? Um, anyway, I love Lydia Davis. I, um, Lauren Groff's Florida is really good. I read that recently. Yeah, I don't. Uh... When you you taught at uh, Eastern for a while in the MFA program, um, what would you, what advice would you give today if a young writer came up and just says, "Hey, I really, I really want to be a writer." Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it seems I... like a simple question or a, a generic one, but you know, there's a lot of advice out there, and I would I would tell people before you. You know, before you listen to anything else, before you put any other advice on your radar screen, read a lot and write a lot. Just read a lot and write a lot, you know? And um, 
I think you find your way that way. And that there's lots of other advice that you can be given as a writer. And there's times that it's good for you. And there's times it's not good for you, I think. You know, there's times certain people will tell you things. Uh, show, don't tell. Sometimes show, don't tell is good advice. But it's not always good advice. And if you live your whole life like that's the way you write fiction, well, that's, that's not the way to go, I don't think. Um, and so I just think read a lot, keep your mind open, and um, force yourself to the page. I think it, might, it may be that we all have a certain amount of stuff we have to write through to get to the stuff that we can do at our best, you know? Yeah. And that if you don't do that, you won't ever get there. Yeah, like if you sit, the there, first. Right, yeah, yeah, you sit yeah. there thinking, oh, this isn't good, this isn't good. Right. It's, it's exactly right. It's not good. But write it and then try to make it better or throw it away and write the next thing. Well, that was Ira Glass's advice for um, podcast or for anything. He said yeah. you have to be willing to be terrible for a long time. Yeah. And I was wondering if kind of the, the, the tenure rule kind of uh, applied to you as well in terms of how long it took t to work on your craft where you kind of felt like, you know, I'm really now starting to develop my own voice and all my skills and, and cutting and pasting from other writers that I really like is finally formulating into my own creativity. Do you feel like it was kind of a, generically speaking, a 10-year journey? Or at least, you know, probably yeah. longer. And it's still yeah. going on. Yeah. You know, it still right. evolves in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, for a big, and this is a difference between journalism and fiction writing, at least the way I have to write fiction, is that uh, I, I went into the MFA program at Eastern, and that helped me become a published writer. I didn't publish anything before I went in it, and I started publishing stories when I was in it. That story I told you about McSweeney's. Mm -hmm. I was a student in the MFA program at Eastern when that happened. And mm -hmm. what happened at that in that program was I got great. I learned a lot from the professors and my fellow students, but the main thing was I just got taught a, a, a way of working harder, a way of re revising my stories more to make the sentences and, and therefore everything else as good as, as they could be. I wrote like a journalist most of my life, meaning you're done when the deadline comes and you're done forever when the deadline comes, right? You don't ever go back to it. And so I would write these fiction, I'd write these short stories when I was in the MFA program. I'd go to Sam Ligon, who was my thesis advisor, and Sam would be enthusiastic about them and then tell me to keep working on them. And I'd be like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like this... You know, and he would do that I'm over done. and over. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so I developed a, a, a way of writing in which um, I revise a lot more. I return to it a lot more, and I try to hold a high standard toward every bit of it. You know, and um, that wasn't what I was doing for those other years. You know, I what, was there other, ever a moment where you took it to Sam and he said, "Good, now you're done," or Never. did you know you were done? Never. You like, just said, "Sam, I'm done." Well, <laughs> what Sam says is you never really finish a story. You just abandon it. You just give up on it. Like, I can't do this anymore. And um, I kind of, I subscribe to that. You know, I mean, I think that everything's mutable. And uh, I, th I don't like to look at things that have been published, you know, because I'll be like, oh, I wish I'd mm -hmm. done this or that. You know, little tiniest little thing I'll pip away at. But... Um, no, I don't believe Sam ever said, okay, this is done. <laughs> right. It's just like, okay, we're out of time. So 
get your thesis together, you know. So he said, keep working on it, and he said, no. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> like, somebody's publishing it, so I don't yeah, need to work right, on it anymore. Right, right. Yeah, so you have, the, you have another book project, um, another novel in the works. Um, where, where do you see yourself, um, I guess, where do you see yourself maybe 10 years from now? Have you been in the, the journalism business for quite a long time, maybe close to 30? Am I getting that Clark, right when we were chatting before? Yeah, um, 87. Right, 88, I guess. Yeah. No, you got to start in eighth grade. That's when yeah. you're Yeah, good point. <laughs> right, yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, but but novel writing probably could go, I mean, forever. I mean, I, that, or, That's my hope. You know, yeah. I feel like I'm young at that game. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty around the journalism mm -hmm. part of life. Like, I don't know what's the paper going to look like in 10 years? Mm -hmm. And does, am I a part of that? Mm -hmm. You know, like either by my own choice or by just the, the reality of the paper, it might not be. Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't know, like I know a lot of writers who come out and they get their first book and publisher buys it and it doesn't do super fantastically, which was it's just true of both of my books. Neither one were big sellers. They didn't do very, from a just a bottom line, perspective from the publisher I don't know now what that's like to go back out and try to so I've had friends who couldn't sell their second novel at all um, so I don't know I think what comes next is gonna uh, help determine that you know like it's possible I could get some sort of an arrangement where a publisher pays me for a book plus another book or something. And then maybe I evolve in that direction and try to do that for a living. I don't know. That's not that likely, to be honest with you. You know, you, you've been duck. I mean, writing your column now for the spokesman and on a lot of very uh, important topics at, for Spokane for all these years, um, I think that in itself, I mean, that's a collection of how Spokane has evolved, maybe where it's going. It's you certainly have have described a trajectory. Um, do you see any of that coming? Maybe some compilation of your columns or the thoughts about Spokane in general uh, coming out in some sort of maybe even nonfiction kind of mm -hmm. thing. Just thoughts. You know, I haven't thought about that. We the spokesman used to publish books of its columnists. I've got. Doug Clark's book, yeah. I've got John Blanchett's book, I've got, and um, I also have books that of other columnists um, from other places. Louis Grizzard published one for in Atlanta. And, um, uh, I don't, they don't hold up for me very well as books. As a reader, I just am like, well, that have, that was tied to the moment in such a strong way, and we're not in it now, and. And we don't do that at the paper anymore. So I haven't really pursued it myself. Um, In your opinion, what do you think the trajectory of Spokane is now from the day you started writing columns about what's going on around town into where it's at now and where you think that trajectory is taking us in the next five, ten years? Just for the city generally? Yeah. Like how we're... Yeah. Well, I mean, the city, I, I have really come to love it here and... Uh, 
so we moved here 20 years ago from Montana, and we had a little bit of a Montana thing, like, oh, Montana, we love it. We're going to miss Montana. Spokane's like a city, and it's there's not it's not like fancy Patagonia stuff everywhere you look. And, <laughs> and now I'm totally, I've totally switched. I, I mean, I like to go back and see Montana, but I'm like, this is not, you guys lack a little bit of the grit that you need in a, in a city, in a place, you know, like, where are the... You know, we're the poor people. They're just the baristas. Is that, you know, like, um, so I don't know. I have just come to love it here. You know, we've got a family here now. We're raising our son. We've become settled and part of the community. Um, so sometimes I think, I think things are going great in Spokane. But maybe it's just things are feel like they're going pretty good for me, you know, yeah. in Spokane. <laughs> but, but I, um. I uh, I worry about about our ability to suffer something like this pandemic economically, and how does that affect how does that affect the town culturally? Like restaurants is the thing that that is kind of a canary in a coal mine of that a little bit, I think. And they're gonna this is so hard, and so the best of best of that part of our city are places that I imagine are the most challenged by this. I don't, I might totally be wrong about that, but I mean, I think about creative stuff driven by chefs, Tony Brown's stuff at Ruins, and Higstead is, his, that's getting kind of big, I guess, but like the, the sh- local chefs are doing their own thing. I worry about that, and then by extension, whatever else they kind of represent in the town, people taking risks, being creative, and yet needing to, to make it work, needing to have some kind of financial underpinning to make it work. And, I wonder, you know, how does an organization like Terrain um, come through this? I don't mean that I don't think they will, but I, I there's a lot of pretty strong momentum, I think, in the town for creative, cool, interesting stuff happening. Things that maybe are wasn't happening as much, weren't happening as much before, or at least our idea of them was wasn't there that there wasn't much of that going on. Um, more young people stay here now and than used to, I think, and that just, you know, feeds. Every time I'm at one of those terrain things, I'm like, this is so weird. Like, it's st- I still find it weird. I'm like, this is not my idea of what happened. Or pivot, you know, or something like that. I'm like, this is so great. So there's a lot of that, and um, I hope. My, my feeling is that you, that that energy continues forward, but that it, but we also need, you know, people need to be able to make a living. Hey, Sean, I yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. This thanks has been for asking awesome. Me. Yeah, I yeah. enjoyed it. A lot of fun. Thanks for the beer, too. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs>